It's Body Talk with The Nihilist. A new podcast series exploring sex, sexuality, sexual health and sex culture in general. With very upfront explicit language from the get-go and all done from a very, very queer perspective. My name is Niall, a.k.a. The Nihilist. I will be your host for the following 60-odd minutes. And today we've got an interview with a man called Bill Campbell, who, if you live in Manchester or Salford and you frequent Islington Mill, the venue stroke art space stroke all kinds of things, B&B, queer hub, one of the most important spaces in Greater Manchester and Salford for its artistic and cultural life. No lie, Islington Mill is very, very important. Today on Body Talk, we are joined by Bill Campbell, who is the man who set up and has run Islington Mill space for the last 20 years. When I first moved to Manchester in 2010, discovering Islington Mill was, for me, a real breakthrough moment. I had moved to Manchester from Glasgow, and in Glasgow I had been heavily involved in the kind of DIY art space scene. I had been based in a building and with a collective known as The Chateau, which had been set up by the band Franz Ferdinand as a cheap space for them to rent to rehearse. This was before they were signed to any label or had released uh, Take Me Out or anything like that. They had found this um, disused floors of a warehouse over a small corner shop and asked the landlord of the corner shop if they could rent out some of the floors for themselves to practice in and for their friends to pop with art studios. I was involved in that in Glasgow and when I first moved to Manchester after leaving Glasgow, discovering Islington Mill was very important for me because it felt like tapping into that same current of DIY out with the mainstream artist populated reclaimed spaces. Islington Mill is what used to be a small cotton mill, I believe, on the outskirts of Manchester city centre, although Islington Mill is in Salford. It's very much on the edges of Manchester city centre. And over the years, it has seen host to, I can't even go into it, guys, just so many amazing gigs and club nights and film screenings and gallery events and art shows and spoken word and everything. Islington Mill has been a really, really important space for me in my own artistic life, but also for me and my partner and our queer family and friends in finding and establishing and nourishing our queer community. My partner and I started hosting events in Islington Mill in around, I think it was around 2013, 2014. And we still do stuff at Islington Mill to this day. So this space, which is technically it's not a venue anymore, but it still has capacity to do smaller um, exhibitions and shows and stuff like that, which it still does. It's been a very, very important space for me and my partner in basically populating a queer scene outside of the mainstream, outside also of Manchester's gay village which is important, but it's also important to be bringing queer arts and culture to spaces that aren't the gay village. And Islington Mill has helped us with that innumerably. I can't actually even describe how important it has been to us and to a lot of our queer friends as well. The um, Cheddar Gorgeous, who was on the show a couple of episodes back. In fact, no, Cheddar Gorgeous was on the last episode of this show. Cheddar has a studio space in Islington Mill. It was, in fact, this studio space that gave birth to the idea for the Channel 4 show Drag SOS that was out last year and that we um, briefly discussed with Cheddar on the last episode. Cheddar and some of the other uh, drag queens, such as Lil Queen, Anaphylactic, um, Licorice Black, uh, Violet Blonde and Ms. Blair, have and have had uh, studios in Islington Mill, which they deemed the Drag Lab. So it was the, um, the Drag Lab was, in fact, the birth of the idea for Channel 4's uh, Drag SOS. So it's a very, very important space 
to us in the queer community here in Manchester, Greater Manchester and Salford. And I'm overjoyed to have Bill on the show this week. Um, one of the things that is surprising about this is that I had an idea of what of people to find and to track down with themes that I wanted to talk to them about, about sex and sexuality. But people have started approaching me. And once they find out that this is something that I'm engaged in, that The Nihilist is making a sex-based podcast called Body Talk, people have been approaching me and wanting to speak to me about the various issues around sex and their own personal stories in relation to sex and sexuality. And Bill Campbell was one of those people. He overheard me talking to Cheddar Gorgeous at Islington Mill about this is my idea, I want to do this thing. And then Bill independently approached me with an idea for a show. And here we are talking about it. I am very grateful for Bill to opening up to me so honestly on this episode of Body Talk because the um, the topic of this show is addiction. Not just sex addiction, but addiction to various things that are beyond sex, but which sex can then get entangled with. It's complex. It's not a simple, straight-up thing of, I'm a sex addict. How do I cure it? What I'm going to be, what you're going to be hearing and what I'm going to be talking to Bill about this week is about the complex nature of addiction and how that ties into people's sex lives without them necessarily becoming quote-unquote sex addicts. It's an interesting topic and I'm sure it's something we're going to be coming back to in future shows as well. And also there were some um, areas of discussion that we didn't get to cover on this week's uh, Body Talk with the Nihilist featuring Bill Campbell. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to be having Bill coming back on the show in the future to talk about that. Specifically, one area that we really didn't get into was porn. But the next wave of Body Talk with the Nihilist guests, porn is going to be a very central topic. So I think that I probably will be getting Bill on here to um, talk about his own personal relationship to pornography. But anyway, for this week's show, we are talking about addiction. It's a nice um, progression along from where we were talking to Cheddar Gorgeous about compulsion in sex on the last episode. And this is taking some of those themes and developing them further. And also Bill goes into some of his own recovery story. So if you or anyone you know are also in recovery, there might be some good information for you in here, or at least somebody that you can relate to in terms of their own journey. So without further ado, let's get to the show. This is Body Talk with a Nihilist with Bill Campbell. Bill Campbell, welcome to Body Talk with the Nihilist. Hi, Niall. Hi, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing good today, thank you. Yeah. Good, good to hear. Right, as is tradition on the show now, even though this is only the uh, fifth episode, I am instating this as the tradition for the show, that every new guest that comes on, I hit them with the same question. And the question is open to interpretation. We have got um, subjects that we want to talk about today on the show. So I will let you interpret the opening question in the way that you see fit. And that question is, Bill Campbell, do you remember the first time? <laughs> Niall. Um, yeah, I do just about remember my very first time and then not many other first times after that. Okay. Um, but I'm really grateful to be here talking about a really recent first time. Okay. Uh, which is, I think, what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Um in that I'm very recently sober. Okay. And so at the age of 47, I probably spent most of my first time with people having sex for the first time. Not 100% there. Right, okay. <laughs> um, and I'd got myself into quite a bit of a pattern with that, shall we say, up until recently. Mm -hmm. um, but my first time is to have given up all of that, and I'm now about 200 days into over 200 days into non-vice uh, states. Some people might call that sobriety or uh -huh. recovery, but I'm not really using those terms. Okay. But it meant that I got to have sex for the first time with a, a new person sober. Mm. Right, okay. For the first time in what is most of my life. Wow. Can I ask you how did it feel? <laughs> <laughs> Apart from, like, obviously sex feels good, but that's not what I mean. Yeah. How did it feel? Well, it was really interesting because I felt so aware in a way. I was just so 
it's, it, I, I gave up all my vices. Maybe we'll talk about that in more detail as we go on, but mm -hmm. at lockdown. Okay. So there was this natural period of time where nobody was meeting, and I was using that time to really kind of ground myself and take myself out of a, a, an addictive place mm -hmm. and bring every resource that I had available to me to that process. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I'd been enjoying up until that point was um, uh, opening up my relationship with my partner and therefore having sex with new partners. Mm -hmm. So there was a break in that. And... This person is someone that I'd had quite a, a drug-fueled session with, just ahead of lockdown. Okay. Uh, and then we obviously had this three-month period where we weren't allowed to see anybody, mm -hmm. or a bit longer, whenever it was. So it was really quite a moment to kind of be in contact with that person mm -hmm. um, and to break the lockdown. Yeah. Not, not the law, but to kind of break that period of time. Yeah. And to think about having sex yeah totally sober it was a very new feeling i felt very alive mm -hmm. very very in tune with those feelings in a way that i'd not done before i think what i'd probably been doing before is as soon as i'd feel those kind of slightly energized nervousy feelings i would have reached for should we have a cigarette break or should we just top up a drink or added mm -hmm. yeah. those things into those moments to kind of take me away from that intensity mm -hmm. So to experience that intensity was like, and be with it was a really great first time. Cool. That sounds that sounds great. It also does sound very interesting. Um, did you have so this person that you had to hook up with? You'd been with them previously, yeah. But in a drug context, yeah. Was there any kind of nervousness about meeting this person in a sobriety context? Or not bringing drugs into that mix because to me as somebody who also engages in casual hookups with people and you know some of those people are repeat partners if a hookup to me was too associated with a kind of vice like that i might choose to find somebody else but yeah. the fact that you actually went back to someone that you've been there with before how was that um well i guess it was just someone who was um the most recent to some extent um, person and we had kind of kept in contact and the whole lockdown had meant we'd kept in contact because it was like oh you mm. know we're all in this weird situation together yeah um but yeah your questions about how did it feel like breaking the idea of having it with with the vices in there i think we talked about it i'd, I'd said i've been used you know it was three months in at this point i'd said i've been mm -hmm. you know just to let you know this is where i've been and they were very supportive of that yeah uh, and we met during the day rather than at one in the morning and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that person was really helpful in being that bridge. Right. That's good. Uh, from, yeah. Yeah. So you are, how many days sober are you? I'm 200, 210. Today. 210. I count because my prep has it written. I write ah. it on my prep. Right. Okay. That's very good to know. Um, so... Bill, for the listenership at home, could you fill us in on basically what your recovery journey has been? Yeah, and I, I think to do that, I, I need to explain kind of how my addiction emerged okay. and, and became sure. what I would call an addiction. Okay. Um, in that it was quite an insidious and gradual process, I would say. Okay. Um. You know, I think I was involved in nightlife running a club where drinking and drugs was part of that culture. Mm -hmm. But I think because I'd built that that life around a community, a business, uh, it's where I lived as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, booze and drugs for me was very much a part of that. I'd made it part of my, uh, you know, it was part of my life that everybody had the best time that they could have and that I was living it and not just... Uh, sure. making it happen and it's also so acceptable in that sense um, so you know moving gradually you know I realised that it was becoming more and more difficult to kind of lead my day life okay. of making everything the business side of things work yeah. and uh, the nightlife work uh, so I gradually began to cut down the nightlife but I realized that the drinking and the drug taking was moving into a different place. And for me, that's where it began to cross over with sex and sexuality. Okay, right. 
because what I've been finding is like after a big night, um, initially having sex with my partner was always a great ending to a big night. Mm -hmm. But then also if I'd been out without my partner and I'd found myself in that state of intoxication, then having a great wank seemed like a brilliant idea. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, as my nightlife cut down, then my drinking and all my sexual behavior became like a binge session in itself. Okay. That makes sense. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, and it, and I do want to make clear for the listenership at home that your vices in terms of what you're recovering from, um, while sex was quite closely tangled up with your vices, it wasn't necessarily sex itself no. that you were in recovery from. No, I mean, for me, what I think it is, is that I think I think as queer people, we carry a lot of shame around sex. And for okay. me, I now realise that it was a lot around shame and how I was trying to reach parts of my sexuality sure. and that drink and drugs had become the way to kind of attempt to get around that. Yeah. That's what I realise now. Yeah. But at the time, it had just kind of slipped into a pattern of behaviour yeah. where, you know, a great session wanking session didn't feel right unless it had the drink and drugs with it right okay yeah i see was there a moment when you're yourself like there's always the like in mainstream narratives of addiction and recovery there's always like i hit rock bottom and then i checked into betty ford or whatever it is like there's <laughs> yeah. always a singular moment was that the case with you um no there was a range of moments <clears throat> excuse me where i really thought like this is going, this isn't going well. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd say over a period of five years, okay. I was acknowledging addiction. Like people from around the mill will know that I told them like in 2015, I think I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. And, you know, I did have various times of, you know, sobriety, stopping drinking, mm -hmm. but I would still smoke and there would be other things going on. And this kind of sexual element was still there. Mm-hmm. So it was very hard to um, escape it all, if you like. Because yeah. really it's just providing a distraction yeah. from what is really the painful bit. Yeah. Was it a hard process to kind of detangle sex and your own sexuality from the addiction, the, your recovery journey and your addictions? I think because they've become so intertwined. I think like if you're an addict, the idea of giving up whatever you're you know, the belief that one, we have to give up, yeah. that, that, that the, the root out of addiction is, is uh, abstinence. That's, yeah. you know, some people think differently about that. Okay. Um, and also like when you're faced with kind of when it's tangled, you, you've, you go through a grieving process to some extent because, you know, I think that people say there's like five stages to grief, any kind of grief. And one of them is like bargaining where one is denial, like it's not really happening. Mm -hmm. Another is bargaining where you're saying, you know, can we make this work in a different way? And I think over a period of five years, I was going through these processes of trying to bargain yeah. with myself or with yeah. addiction. Yeah. You know, can I, can I just do it moderately? Can I do yeah. it occasionally? Can yeah. I do it, um, you know, is it okay to do it if it doesn't involve the other bits? So is it okay to have the sexual side, but without the, the vices? And is that possible? Mm-hmm was the kind of thing that was going on over a prolonged period of time. Would it be safe to say that that is the, where you've arrived at though? In what way? That say a bit you, more. you um, still can indulge in your sexual side without relying on the narcotic element to get you to that stage. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's what I, that's been the biggest surprise for me. And right, that's why okay. I kind of had it as my first, my recent first moment, because in those, you know, I, it had got so entwined, my sexuality and the use of, of the various substances that I really couldn't imagine getting to those places that I wanted to go of acceptance of my sexuality and exploration of my sexuality. Yeah. I felt like I could only do that with those uh, substances attached. Yes. So when, when faced with like having to think I need to give up these substances because this is just not going well, I felt like I was going to have to give up on a huge mm -hmm. uh, section of my sexuality and uh, my route to it. Mm -hmm. But I was just so surprised to find that it was actually the total opposite mm -hmm. and that it was almost like a switch flicking from this is so entwined to now I'm feeling everything. 
Yeah. And now I'm feeling everything in a really great way. And I'm actually getting more out of it when yeah. I had assumed that by giving up, I would be getting less. Yeah. That's cool. I think one thing we need to tune the listenership into as well at this point is um, your recovery journey is, how best to articulate this, your recovery journey is not like you're not a part of 12 steps. No. So you've got a kind of, how would you, Bill, how would you describe your recovery journey? Letting, like telling people that you you don't subscribe to, for instance, 12 steps. How would you describe your recovery journey? Um, well, I guess because I had quite a prolonged, this five-year period, shall we say, where I was kind of toying with it. Mm -hmm. The 12-step just scared me a lot. Uh, I think it's because, like, you know, I had ideas of, like, you know, I remember my mum watching Cagney and Lacey in, in the 80s, and one of them was an addict, and they had to go to AA and stand up and say, I'm an addict. And all of that just kind of added to the shame of being an addict. Mm hmm and the kind of, you know, notion of coming out as an addict. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it was also part of this bargaining process of, am I really an addict or am I something else? And also there's so many of these vices, you know, am I a sex addict? Am I going to NA? Am I going to AA? Which A am I actually going to go to? Mm -hmm. Maybe also, because I've never been, I don't actually understand the 12 step process. So it's not really fair for me to kind of comment on what I think of it as a process. Okay, fair enough, yeah. You know, but what I really was interested in is trying to understand what what had gone wrong with me. Mm -hmm. How had I got here? Mm -hmm. How had someone like me ended up like an addict? In that I'm so, I've got a lot of privilege. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I was... People talk about addiction and trauma. Mm -hmm. And so I went on a journey of like trying to understand had I had some trauma that I hadn't quite resolved, that yeah. I couldn't even remember, stuff yeah. like that. And I was coming a blank. Because like I said earlier about the, the mainstream notion of a, a singular moment of rock bottom, and that was when I realized. Yeah. There, it's also in mainstream culture, the framing of addiction narratives, it always stems, well, it usually to me, as far as I can see and what I see in mainstream culture, they always portray it as stemming from like one incident or there is like one trigger that starts the addiction. And yeah. then there's one moment that ends the addiction. And what you're saying is like, that wasn't the case with you. Yeah, for me, that wasn't the case. And I think that might be a little bit oversimplistic. Um, you know, I think kind of, you know, again, I've had, a, I've, I've, I've worked with a lot of therapists to help me understand a little bit more about where all this has come from. And, you know, I think that is, I think there's kind of a couple of things of why I wanted to speak about it. I think one is that people don't always speak about addiction when they're in the darkness of it. Okay. And they also tend to not speak about it when they're relatively new out of it. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'm only 200 days or so out, which is very, very mm -hmm. close to the bone. But mm -hmm. part of why I wanted to speak was to kind of document for myself where I'm at, because I think it's in those first days that lots of realizations are flying around for the first time. Yeah. Especially if your recovery journey is entangled with your sex and your sexuality, which as queer people are already these journeys of entangling and detangling and self-discovery for us that, you know, to go on probably for our entire lives. Mm -hmm. So to like, yeah, I can very much see the importance of wanting to document your recovery journey because it's also a part of the detanglement of your sexuality as a queer person. Um, was So when I said that there wasn't a specific like singular moment of trauma that caused you to become a quote unquote addict. Um, what, what do you know? Is there, what was in the background of, or, you know, is there any, anything that has caused, is, was there, was there any causation of you be, being an addict? I don't know if this is the right language, but I think you're trying to, under, yeah, I think you can get what I'm trying to say. Well, I think like I say, I, I had had certain narratives where I thought that there, sh there should be. Mm-hmm. But I think over what I've gradually kind of learned from, um, you know, speaking to a lot of people is that, <clears throat> you know, it's like really early years stuff. You know, it's kind of in the first six months of life. Okay. When we are just kind of little blobs of babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, where we're 
trying to get our most basic needs met of kind of food and warmth and uh, mm-hmm. comfort and all of that, those comforting times, you know, almost regardless of what our parents are like and our situation, they are going to not get it right 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And that it's how we deal as youngsters and how we're supported as youngsters in dealing with those unmet needs. Yeah. They can feel very traumatic. So it doesn't have to be yeah. necessarily a big traumatic event. Yeah. And obviously for people who have had big traumatic events, that's a very other, a very different story. Yes. But I think it's part of human nature and human development who yeah. have experienced this kind of detachment from the disappointment of not having your needs met and how you deal with that. Yeah. And I think that starts a process. You, you begin to tell yourself what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Why? And I think that sets into place a series of beliefs that we as queer people particularly really carry through our lives. Yeah. So I think we begin to attempt to rationalise it as young people as there must be something wrong with me. I'm I'm bad and unworthy and that's why I'm not getting fed when I want it or whatever. It's something as simple as that. Yeah. Has your recovery journey helped you untangle that stuff? Well, I think I, my approach to recovery was to attempt to untangle that stuff okay. rather than just give up the substance. Because I thought, here I am using so many different substances, you know, I have to untangle what's really underneath this yeah. to begin to get an understanding of it. And that's where, like, understanding these underlying beliefs and, yeah. and how they came about. Right, okay. <clears throat> Can you tell us a bit about how you've done that? I think it's mainly awareness and, like, then really seeing it. So kind of, you know, understanding, finding, allowing certain stuff and assumptions to go. Okay. So, you know not trying to seek out trauma that's not there yes okay okay yeah i get that but accepting that we've all had traumatic events and that that's had an impact yeah then yes tracing it through my life you know i hated school Mm -hmm. so that was telling me certain things that the way other people see me can be problematic because people picked out that i was queer very early on yeah made that a point of shame made that a point of target so i you know i gradually began to believe you know, that there was definitely stuff wrong with me. Yeah. And that that created very uncomfortable moments. Yeah, yeah. And I think those, un, um, and then like the, the other kind of core belief, I think is that, and the world is a bad place and a dangerous place. And I think for queer people in school, the world is a dangerous place mm-hmm. and it continues to be a dangerous place. So I think we tend to carry these beliefs with us that are just playing like a nonstop record in the back of our minds. Yes, I totally, I totally dig that. I really understand that, actually, yeah, now that you articulate it like that. And I think they're there even unconsciously. Mm. And I think they're affecting how we relate to each other, mm-hmm. how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to the world. Mm-hmm. And that we are continually kind of manifesting them in one way or another. Um and and it becomes tied into our sex lives. You know the one about um, you know if, you know all of this is like you know how other people see me. If you knew the real me, yes, you wouldn't love me. And if you don't love me, then yeah. you might. Yeah, it, it will be dangerous for me. You might. Yeah, and that notion of the real me is something that's very very close to so many queer people's experiences because it's like that underlying fear that i think all queers have which is if you knew the real me you'd never love me because so much of what we think of the real selves is something that we have to hide mm-hmm. um was there anything that you experienced on your recovery journey that helped you access the real you i think i think we like moving on in further in the future i think we need to reframe that language of the real me yeah but you know what i'm trying to say was there anything that you accessed on your recovery journey that was like oh this is me and it's okay yeah because i mean i think kind of you know these like underlying beliefs i'm a bad person there's something about me that that people won't like and the world's dangerous you can read about those things and you can have a therapist talk them through to you but you, you they're really hard to get your head around Sometimes it's really obvious when you see it. And when you see it, you can see it all around you. But I think the thing that really kind of changed things for me in terms of experiencing that was when I went to do ayahuasca. 
Right, okay. I think people think of ayahuasca as just like a psychedelic yeah. experience or bright colours and flashing yeah. lights and yeah, stuff. Yeah. And it is very much that. But it's always done in ceremony. Mm-hmm. It's not a recreational mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. You know, it's talked about in terms of um, helping with, with recovery. Mm. Um, it didn't have an immediate recovery impact on me. Okay. But what it did do, I, I did it three times in, uh, while I was uh, away on a seven-day retreat. Mm-hmm. And in terms of that experiencing the real you and taking you back to those moments of discomfort, you're lying there and you feel like you're a newborn baby, mm-hmm. literally, and, wow. and that you're feeling those feelings for the first time again. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of re-experiencing what it's like to go through that. Yeah, And in that sense, I would say you're recovering. And I think that's what people mean when they use the term recovery. I, I don't use the word recovery because I think it's associated with 12 step. But I think, you know, rather than kind of recovery as you've broken down and we're going to fix you. Okay. I think recovery is about going back to that early version of you and recovering what you could have been. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. kind of recipe for you. Yes. The experience of for want of a better term, the real you yeah. that hadn't got quite so much of that package, uh, that, that package of baggage, yeah. those pre-recorded beliefs yeah. um, playing in the back of our minds constantly. Yeah. And it, allows, it allowed me to kind of get a glimpse of that and reprocess some of that stuff. So you see ayahuasca helped you to confront truths about your own life that you had pushed away and kind of hidden from yourself? You're saying it's fair? Yeah, kind of parts of me that I thought had become me. Okay. That actually weren't me. Okay. Um, <laughs> and are you comfortable telling us what those are? Well, I guess that they're, it's hard to say it's one specific thing. Mm-hmm. But I think kind of, you know, it all comes back to those, you know, core beliefs, I would say, of like, there's something wrong with me. Okay. So actually just to go, there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah. I'm exactly as I'm supposed to be. Right. And ayahuasca helped you to achieve that kind of mental clarity? Yeah, like, as I said, I had three ceremonies. And the very first ceremony was the most frenetic one. Uh Things looping around in my head constantly. Yeah. Quite disturbing, quite kind of very uncomfortable. And it was playing back almost like everything I know. Yeah. And every technique that I use in my day-to-day life to get around certain things. And it would be like coming back. It's like, here it is again. Mm. When you do that thing, it's because you feel this way and you know it, Mm. but you still feel the need to do whatever it is you're doing. Mm -hmm. Here it is again. It was like showing me like a Google search. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It like came up as a great long list with blue headings. You're doing it again, you're doing it again, you're doing it again. And then, you know, after hours of this, it began to feel like you don't need to do anything. You're just, you're just enough. Wow. You can ditch all that Google search. Yeah. Just put it in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> um, beyond just the kind of behavioral stuff as well, though. Yeah. Is there anything that ayahuasca forced you to confront that you've since let go that enabled your addictions and your behavior like this? Like, what are the things that, you know, it showed you like... I can let go of that. Well, I think kind of, I think I'd inadvertently built my whole identity around Islington Mill. Okay. The project that I spent, I spent most of my adult life working on. Sure. And, you know, Islington Mill is a weird place because it is how I have survived and it is where I live Mm -hmm. and it is my community. Um. But when I began to realize that maybe that whole thing was motivated about trying to find safety, trying to find a safe place to be that's kind of somehow outside of the rest of the world, yeah. that is not as influenced by those systems and structures that I'd felt were making me feel so uncomfortable mm-hmm. all the time, you know, it, I began to see a bit more of what my motivations might have been. Mm-hmm. And I guess they begin to overlap. It's like, I think there is a good motivation to lead your life as fully as possible. Mm-hmm. But I think there can be a negative motivation if it's motivated by fear yeah. and a search for safety. 
Yeah. Okay. So what were the fears that you confronted then? Well, I guess it was kind of, you know, I had to accept that I'm not a building. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, you know, people don't know me as a person. They know Islington Mill, people that know Islington Mill, mm-hmm. but they don't know me as a person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I had to confront that I might need to let go of that entire part of my identity. Okay. And again, there's a grieving process in that and a bit of a bargaining. Mm. Mm. And you were mentioning as well about did it come to a certain moment? Mm-hmm. And for me, the, uh, you know, that narrative of a moment of despair, it wasn't quite like that because it just kind of grew. But what I'd seen is how I'd changed. I'd began to manipulate my life in such a way where I could have more time binging than doing other things. Yeah, okay. And that's when I began to realise that, you know, I've actually created and manifested my own circumstance to get more addicted. Yeah, sure. Um. One thing that we have touched on earlier on in the show, but it's a massive topic and it's something that we need to explore a bit further here because it definitely also does tie into your own journey and your recovery journey. But I think it's something that affects pretty much everyone who's on the queer spectrum. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say is the topic of shame and how that affects us as queer people, not just in relating to addictive behavior because it's more general than that. I think anyone who grows up out with societal norms feels a sense of shame at not being privy to those norms for whatever reason and that's not just about sexuality there's a whole load of things that that can be um said about so you mentioned earlier about like shame and i also have like (laughs) a relationship with shame as well that we can go into as well but how i'll let you start the conversation about shame by asking you to if you are willing to, can you tell us about how a sense of shame perhaps played into your own addictions and how you got beyond that? Yeah, I mean, I think no one escapes shame. Mm-hmm. I think everybody, uh, and it's not just a queer or, or a, a gay thing, I think that shame is part of life mm-hmm. and maybe is there to help protect us from certain things. Okay. However, it's been used and we internalise it in really quite a toxic way. And I think queer people especially because of what we're told about our bodies and who we are and Mm -hmm. our place in in the world. Um, I think for me, over my life, I'd, uh, you know, as well as feeling shame about the kind of sex that I wanted to have, I think I had inadvertently gone down a kind of straight version of gayness, a heteronormative, Mm -hmm. monogamous set of um, situations over my life and I've been in a long-term relationship now since Mm -hmm. 2003 Mm -hmm. and I think when we enter into relationships we tend to kind of because we're wanting to attract whoever that person is we put out what we hope are our best Mm -hmm. features Mm -hmm. and we put anything that they respond to nicely out far front and anything that they might not be responding to we kind of pack away Mm -hmm. and I think that adds to some elements of shame I think it's the bits that we're perhaps less comfortable with that we might Mm. pack away yeah and I think kind of what I found is like myself and my partner have a great relationship it's now 17 years Mm -hmm. but there were parts of my sexuality that I'd just packed away Mm. uh, and had without really thinking about it we drifted into a monogamous relationship Mm -hmm. and we'd built a great life together Mm -hmm. Uh, we still had great regular sex, but it was the sex that we had mm-hmm. and not all the other parts of my sexuality that is in my mind. And I think that's where over that really prolonged period of time, that's where I'd begun to exercise, wanting to reach those parts of my sexuality that I felt were shameful, even though mm-hmm. because they weren't part of our relationship and they weren't part of an outside world. Mm-hmm. So I'd inadvertently closed them off. Yeah. And package them up into these binge sessions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where I was accessing it and, and joining with that part of myself that I'd hidden Th- away. That's interesting to me because it sounds like the shame that you were experiencing was kind of self-instilled. Yeah. Which is very interesting for me because I grew up in Ireland, which... Um, you know, and my parents are quite devout Catholic and stuff like that. So the shame that I feel 
that I feel as a queer person and also for other um, things to do with my personality and my, my body and stuff like that as well. I feel like they were very much outside influences that were thrust upon me. And my journey was through navigating through a world, knowing that so much of the information that is being fed to me by this world, I know isn't true. Yeah. Because how it relates to my life is completely the other way around. Um, so, for instance, the I'm just in general, like the shame you're supposed to feel for being fat because, oh, you're unhealthy and you're a drain on the blah, 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 blah. But from my point of view, it was like, I like being fat because I'm sexually attracted to fat people. And I like embodying that. I like embodying the desire that I feel as well. So it's interesting. So my take on shame is that shame was very much something that came from outside. And that was something that I had to ward off. And that allowed me to accept myself more fully. What you're, the, the, the way you're talking about shame is, and this is why I find it interesting as well, because as an Irish person, I always perceive the UK to be such a, um, a non-religious country mm-hmm. that I feel like, oh, they don't feel shame about that kind of thing. <laughs> they don't feel shame at all, because to me, shame is so tied up with specific religious outlooks and transgressing against what they tell you is their their morals, their moral reality, whereas they don't really have that as much in England. So I find it interesting that the shame that you felt was something that you brought on yourself or was there more to it than that? Well, yeah, I'm responsible for how I'm responsible for how my life panned out. So, yes, I brought some of it on myself. But yes, Mm -hmm. it is also from outside because we live in a society that, yeah, you're talking about Catholicism in Mm -hmm. Ireland, but, you know, it's as prevalent here and in every other society, I would say. True. in that yeah. case, can I ask you then, where has the outside enforced shame in your life come from? The outside enforced shame come from? Um, you mean in terms of, you know, the equivalent of Catholicism? Yes, yes. Well, I, I was brought up Catholic as well, but here. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, Sorry. you know, there are Catholics in other parts of the world other than That's Ireland. True. That's true. Yeah. Sorry, I should have done my research there. I didn't know that, actually, that you were also Catholic. I'm Catholic, yeah. Ah, right. Okay. Well, so, then, I take all that back. <laughs> I take all of that back. But no, I am interested in knowing, okay, let's move beyond religion then. Yeah. Were there other um, areas that the shame was being instilled on you beyond just the religious? I think it's just, I think everyone feels shame. I think we don't talk about sex enough yeah. anywhere. And I think we are told that that's something you do behind closed doors yeah. and that you do in a monogamous, yeah. straight relationship and yeah. that you make babies and that's yeah. all it's for. I think that is what people are generally told. Yeah. Um, and I think it's not something to enhance your spirituality or how you see yourself. So yeah. it's kind of seen as a disconnected act <laughs> yeah. for a lot of people. So is the shame that you have felt and that tied into your addictions to do with sex? Yeah. Is it mostly to do with sex? I'd say it's mostly to do with sex. Right, yeah. I think it's that belief if you knew the real me, yeah, you know, you wouldn't like me the way that I think you like me because I represent a building or that I have this identity or I have this other outward stuff. So a lot of imposter syndrome. Yes, okay. Yeah, And, you know, I'd be sat in kind of meetings discussing kind of cultural stuff yeah going yeah you know i like this kind of sex and this is what i spend my time doing necking a load of drugs and reaching that and i'm an addict i'm all these things that i shouldn't be yeah and that i'm not allowed to be in this place or i shouldn't be in this place that's interesting to me again because um one of the like i said before like as a fat person you have shame attached to your physicality Mm -hmm. to your body and that's not something you can hide Mm-hmm. It's the first characteristic that anyone will recognize in you walking down a street from 100 miles away or 100 yards away mm-hmm. is that that person is fat. That's an undeniable reality. So that shame is very much ever present on the surface. Yeah. And it relates to how other people view you physically, the reality of who you are physically, because they're looking at you and they're like, you are a fat person and you should be ashamed of that having that type of body. Whereas what you're talking about as well is interesting to me because it's 
a shame that's got to do with imper- um, imperceptible characteristics that, for instance, in a meeting and like the imposter syndrome thing, but how would a person know about your private sex life? Because this is not an arena where that would be discussed necessarily. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like, I, you know, there's different kinds of shame that are enforced on us for different reasons. So I think the kind of shame you're talking about as well is like this deep psychological um like there's so many layers to this kind of shame as well. Like the physical shame of just being like, oh, you fat bastard. That's different to the internalized shame of if only you knew what I'm really like. But I think everybody has that if only you knew because everybody has parts of themselves that they've felt at some point that they should pack away. Yeah, yeah. And it could be anything. Sure. And, you know, um, you know, I think once you see it in that sense, you do see it everywhere across everybody. Yeah, yeah. And it's only like in doing these podcasts and opening up this dialogue for people as well, that's when you suddenly find that like, yeah, everyone has a different variant on this thing somewhere inside them. Yeah, and I think this is why I you know, really appreciate what you're doing here and like really wanted to get on board with it and, mm-hmm. and, and contribute because it's part of my shining yeah. the light on the shame yeah because as soon as you say it yeah out loud to yourself first yeah and see that you've not died yeah yeah totally <laughs> and perhaps you say it to the people that are around you and you know they don't criticize it then you can start to shine a light on it and i yeah. think that's useful for everybody yeah definitely definitely especially when you live in a culture where again this was what to my perception of being raised irish catholic in rural Ireland and then coming to the UK and my perception of oh my god they're so liberated over here when it comes to sex but then you start talking to people and it's like hmm they're not really Mm. they're not as liberated as you perceive them to be so definitely like opening up a sex-based dialogue I think is really important to get to topics like shame and that kind of thing and so now that we've finally arrived on the topic of sex which is what these podcasts are (laughs) technically supposed to be about Uh um would you mind could you like articulate to us how you managed to detangle your web of addictive behaviors from the kind of sex that you actually like and enjoy without you know discarding that kind of sex like how did you get to the realization that i can still have that kind of sex but not be intoxicated well i I think that's still like a work in progress okay okay um but i think kind of you know just like interesting things happened when i when i gave up i mean like i say lockdown has been incredibly helpful because i don't think i could have orchestrated um You know, I think there was a couple of things about that moment just before lockdown. One, I'd kind of managed to manipulate my life so I could spend more time binging and accessing this space. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that chemsex, as in uh, beyond the party drugs, had become closer to me and I began to dabble and I really could see that that was just going to be a downward spiral. Yeah, We have previously gone through this with um, previous guest Cheddar Gorgeous but just yeah. for full clarity for the listenership um, or I'll let you do it if you'd like to mm-hmm. how do you differentiate between chemsex chemsex drugs and party drugs okay well for me I think like you well, know, for you I mean obviously anything is only going to be coming through from you but how would yeah. you Bill Campbell differentiate between party drugs and chemsex drugs well, for me, I think kind of the, there's drugs that you do use in sex or can use in sex, like cocaine and ecstasy, MDMA, mm-hmm. weed, yeah. that you might also use in other parts of your life, perhaps nightlife, clubbing, or, or just to chill out. Mm. Whereas for me, things like Tina and G, meth and those types of things are things that are particularly associated with, yeah. with sexual activity and that you generally wouldn't do, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Uh, in other parts of life. So that's how, where I kind of draw it. Yeah, on. so you weren't, just for full clarity, Tina is crystal meth and G is GHB. Uh-huh. And you weren't taking those drugs in your party or recreational life. No, I'd not got that far. Right. But I was heading that direction. Okay. And I'd become, it had become more available to me. Yeah. And it could have become, you know, if we'd not gone into lockdown, if that hadn't become this kind of stop the world, I want to get off moment, and the world did stop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then I could have easily seen that that could have embedded into my life in the same way. 
Was there, a, a, we talked earlier about singular moments, was there a singular moment of realisation around that? Well, like I say, um, someone moved close to my locality who uses in that way that I'd kind of seen on Grinder, Okay. And that, you know, because this using of drugs and alcohol had become so involved with um, my sexuality, you know, that could have easily have been the next port of call. And I did go around a couple of times and I did dabble. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, th- and, but seeing the impacts of those dabblings, you know, literally damaging my body. Yeah. Uh, was a bit more of a wake-up call, whereas I'd become quite resilient yes. to the other drugs that I'd been using for a, yeah. for a period of time. But even though you had dabbled in the chemsex drugs, yeah. you knew that you needed to stop consuming all drugs. Well, yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As I've as I've said, you know, for me this has been a five year journey of realizing. Yeah. And okay. as I say, attempting to bargain. Can yeah. I use this drug? Can I take a month off alcohol? Can I give up smoking? Yeah. I realized actually I had to give up everything and yeah. my identity as Islington Mill. Yeah. And really strip everything back mm-hmm. and go to that trying to understand who is me without all of those things. Mm-hmm. And how did you realize that you can still maintain your sex life and the kind of sexual activities that before you had deemed as shameful how did you realize that well i can still have that and not have to give that up because surely when you were going into recovery you must have thought like well i won't be able to do that again either yeah i had thought that and that was part of the the fear Mm -hmm. you know and the terrifying kind of cliff you feel like you have to jump off you've got nowhere else to go and that you're going to lose all of this stuff I think kind of non-monogamy with my partner and talking about it with him was a crucial part there. Mm-hmm. And again, that wasn't just an overnight, we're going to open up and it's all going to be fine. You know, that's been a two-year process. Yeah. For us, it's quite a political process as well of like, you know, how did we drift into monogamy and heteronormativity? Mm-hmm. And, you know, our role as queer people is to perhaps fight against that and mm-hmm. challenge that in some way. And uh experiment in that way but we it took us a long time to talk as openly about all these elements of sex so you know bringing that conversation into our lives really explicitly yeah again removes the shame yes and opens up the possibility okay bill on that note would you be willing to tell the listenership what it was in your sex life that you deemed as shameful what were your sex-based behaviors that you said that you felt internally, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, but that you've now come to accept because it's not shameful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think kind of, they're really simple. It's not that dark. Yeah. Wanking in itself is something we generally don't talk about. That's true. Yeah. So to just, you know, and the term fucking wanker. <laughs> uh, is, yeah, it's so pejorative. It's so pejorative. Yeah. And, you know, so just kind of acknowledging that that had become a big part of my sex life. Yes. You know, in itself, yeah. I'd I'd put a lot of shame onto that. Yes. There is, sorry, I'll come yeah. back to it, but I just feel for me personally, yeah, there is this weird shame attached to having a long-term partner yet liking masturbating. Yeah. There is this weird shame because it's kind of like heteronormal society does it. Well, you've got this partner, so you should be using all your sex energy on and with them. But that's not always realistic. And also you're allowed to have differences in flavors of what you're into and stuff and to have experiences. One of the things that I always come back to as well is that like your primary sexual relationship is actually always going to be first and foremost with yourself. Mm hmm. And I think it is important that we actually start talking about wanking because pretty much everybody wanks, even people in long-term relationships. Like both me and my partner wank separately and together sometimes. Yeah. But it's very important to acknowledge that like it's okay to do that and it's not betraying your partner to have a wank. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. So sorry, I just wanted to go on that little tangent. Well, I, th- I think it's right. I think kind of long-term relationships are great because they create an amount of stability. Mm-hmm. But inadvertently, they can also close things down. Yeah. So my partner's also from an Irish Catholic yes. background and I uh-huh. think has a personality of not bringing things to the fore mm-hmm. and just containing things and maybe has a more simplified sexuality than I do. Okay. 
And so because of that, inadvertently, we'd created this dynamic where I'd received the message we can't talk about these things and that we don't do certain things like mm -hmm. wank together mm -hmm. or watch porn together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So having to kind of shine the light on those and bring them in, I felt yeah. like quite hard work and quite dangerous. What if I come and present this to him and he says no? Yeah. It's back to that if you knew the real me. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't like me and my whole relationship might fall down. Yeah. So, like I say, there was nothing like particularly dark in my sexuality that 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 I think is actively shameful, but yes. I built these things around it. I think kind of being bottom and submissive, which I can enjoy, mm -hmm. is another area of that. Yeah. That again, is generally not often talked about. Yes. And it's a whole topic in itself. Yes. That, to kind of get into. And that very much plays into patriarchy yep. and masculinity toxic masculinity in terms of you're not a real man if you like to get dicked yeah you know and it's like that's bullshit you know i mean it just literally is that's not true so yeah i mean i'm not trying to you know press you too much on what were you doing bill tell us what you were doing <laughs> oh. but i think it is important to you know because you have come through this journey yeah and oh you are still on this journey, sorry. And you are still on this journey and you're navigating your way through it. But you have moved beyond shame in your own personal sex practices. And I think it's like for the listenership to explain that like it wasn't the sex practices themselves that were problematic. It was the... How would you describe it, Bill? Well, I'd say it's that in, in finding it difficult to cope with the internalized shame I felt about these things, that mm -hmm. I was channeling it into one route that involved a load of vices yes. and wasn't helpful, and that that had become the only route. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that I've gone beyond shame, because yeah. that is okay. still there and will probably always be there in okay. some sense. Fair enough. But coming here talking about it for me is part of addressing it. Yeah. But what I have gone beyond is using the vices to get around it. Yes. Okay. So, you know, what I would really love and what I would love to really find now is other people who are wanting to explore this type of thing. Yeah. It might already be out there and I just don't know it, but my you know, my assumptions are that, you know, the great, crazy, you know, totally sleazy sex happens in a certain way. Yeah. And, you know, as yet, I've not uncovered it. And so mm. I'm actively kind of, you know, my next exploration is how can I go to places and yeah. deal with that shame sober? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And acknowledge that it's there. And, yeah. and those things can be anything. You know, people, you know, I remember getting naked for the first time mm -hmm. in front of people. And that just took a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are really, really simple things. Mm. But the stuff behind that makes it difficult is so exhausting. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it is, it is like, because I know from just talking about my own personal sex life and stuff is that there these cultures are out there like certain kind of advanced kind of sex practices and relationships and stuff like bdsm mm -hmm. brilliant forums for psychologically when done well and mm -hmm. done in a very safe and secure environment with trusted people yep. really brilliant ways of unpacking stuff like shame and trauma and stuff like that and i think and once you start looking for those things you do find people who are out there who yep. are not want to get beyond being intoxicated to practice these things because they see the value in doing it sober so you can learn like a psychedelic experience you can use it as a teaching moment yeah and you can learn so much about yourself exactly. and your own desire and your body and blah 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 and your relationship to other people like you can learn so much about it just by going there um I mean, I was going to say that, like, I'm 47 now. Okay. You know, I'd assumed, if I'd spoke to my younger self, I would have assumed that at the age of 47, I would have learned everything. <laughs> Whatever. It's I, I describe it as like a third adolescence. It's yes. Like kind of letting go of a huge set of assumptions. Yeah. And really starting from the beginning again. Yeah. And that's really exciting. Yeah. Because, you know, there are new avenues that yeah. are, you know, out there for me to discover mm -hmm. and to go into with all the benefit of what I've learned so far. Mm -hmm. But to have got rid of a load of baggage is a really nice kind of yeah. coming of age. Yeah, 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 totally. <laughs> that I, I mean, really didn't expect to have at nearly 50. Yeah, that's lovely, actually. That's beautiful. I think as queer people always do have more than one adolescence because... Yeah. 
I mean, it might be changing for the younger generations now, but certainly when I was growing up, it was like as an adolescent, and I've already talked about this on Body Talk, I couldn't access the my desires, my true desires, I couldn't access them. Yeah. I couldn't like, you know, find the kind of men I actually wanted to have sex with. Mm-hmm. So that came later in life. So it wasn't just a case of I'm gay. It was like there were, in my second adolescence, which I think kind of happened... If I look at it realistically, I think my second adolescence happened from like my late 20s to my mid 30s. Well, the big part of that was like finding the kind of people that I actually wanted to have sex with. Um, And yeah, I can I can definitely foresee myself having even more kind of adolescences coming up. (laughs) Like one of the reasons that I am doing Body Talk, why I'm doing this podcast is to create a platform where we can talk openly about mm. this sort of stuff and it can be used itself as a teaching moment for younger queers or mm. queers who are a bit don't have access to in-person queer cultures or maybe don't have any other like or who are looking for this information and need to be given this information that's one of the reasons why i'm starting this um podcast series yeah. but also from a personal point of view it's also got to do with me psychologically unpacking so many levels of shame that have been instilled in me yeah. as i've been growing up shame around my body shame around my sexuality shame around a lot of different things about me and i think the only way we can really combat that is to have very very open honest dialogues where we're not being judged on this stuff we're just being allowed to talk i yeah. think yeah I mean, just on the subject of adolescences, it's like I think kind of I realised one thing that really impacted on me is I hit like puberty. At, you know, I was born in 1973. Mm-hmm. So when HIV and AIDS was hitting in the 1984, 85, 86, that's when I was 10, 11, 12, like puberty was really kicking in. Yeah. So yeah. the messages I got straight away, thanks Maggie Thatcher, mm. was that to have the kind of sex I wanted was going to result in, in death. Yeah. Um, and for that to come in at that point in life, I think is, you know, slightly different to people who already had existing sex lives and maybe slightly different to generations that came after. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, things like prep mm-hmm. recently, yeah. you know, has really helped me unpack all of that. Yes. And yeah. take some of that fear out of sex that had just been prevalent. Yeah. And also in terms of what you're saying about learning, you know, we lost a generation. Yeah, absolutely. Of, of people yeah. uh, and their visibility and yeah. their confidence yeah. that we could all be, could learn from. Yeah. I, I really noticed that when I went to things like the Edward Carpenter community. Have you come across them? No, I don't know. Tell me. Yeah. Um, well, this was an exploration of trying to find my queer family mm-hmm. outside of this city and outside of this place. And I came across the Edward Carpenter community. Um, Edward Carpenter was like a Victorian queer guy who uh, really promoted vegetarianism, socialism and and queer stuff and uh, stuff. So it's only dedicated to him in name. It's not about him as a person. But essentially it was a group of people who in the 80s at the height of the HIV crisis realised that their friends and lovers were dying in hospitals and that there was no hospice. Or, or care that they had access to. So initially their ambition was to try and create a space where they could care for their loved ones, mm-hmm. uh, like literally a building. But in the absence of that being a possibility, they started doing kind of respite weeks away where they would go as gather as a community and have like time in a rural setting and try and share learning and uh, being together. So, and it's still going 30 years later. Um, and it's, they've been meeting kind of three times a year ever since. So that's where I found this generation of people who lived through it mm-hmm. and who were that bit older. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think kind of it can be, you know, it does look a certain way because they've kind of grown up almost as a generation. So yeah. when I when I turned up a few years ago in my early 40s to mm-hmm. be the youngest person, well, not the youngest, but one of the younger people out of a group was a kind of new experience for me. But it was just so nourishing the way they'd created a community that was about sharing this learned experience. Mm. And they kind of do, it's all co-created. So people just propose a workshop in life drawing or in discussing sex or, mm. you know, um, erotic massage or, you know, just very simple things that you elect to go to or not. Mm. But I think it's a, that is 
For that to have lasted through that particular moment in time from the 80s to now, I think in itself is an incredible thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'd encourage people to seek it out and potentially consider joining, even if it looks like it's a bunch of older people of a certain way. It's, yeah. uh, there's a structure there that people could get involved in. Cool. Do you have any links or anything? Or should I look that up? Or you can send it to me and I'll... It'll be the Edward Carpenter Community dot co.uk whatever okay cool that seems like a really good place to end actually okay on imparting your own information to our listenership or something that they could engage in that might help them well yeah there's many more though i'd say lgbt foundation do lots of work around recovery yeah uh, and obviously a great organization there's other kind of informal groups like radical fairies okay you know there's a whole raft of um yeah stuff that people can access and we can create our own that's true that's always (laughs) always remember that we can create our own spaces yeah and that's what we're doing here with bonnie talk cool so what a great way to wrap up there did you see what i did there how i tied Mm -hmm. it at the end yeah (laughs) neat little bow on that so thank you very much bill um what i will do is i'll try and get you to send me links to stuff that you think that the listenership might gain value from and i will put them in the show notes um and yeah thank you very much i really appreciate your honesty and your candor in coming on the show and telling us all this and do you have anything else that you want to sell twitter anything (laughs) no are you just islington mill is there uh i'm uh, yeah i'm not wanting to sell islington mill because i'm i'm a person Okay, yeah. <laughs> not a building. You're not a number, you're a man. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Uh, this whole thing's about integration, isn't it? And so I'm wanting to create new Twitters that integrate more of this kind of sexual okay. sexuality side of, of me and put yeah. it out there. I've not done it yet, so I'll let you know. And I would appreciate and welcome people contacting me if they want to speak about addiction. Sure. Or how we can create spaces where we explore sexuality. How can people best find you then? How can they best contact you? Uh, I'll be setting up a Twitter and I'll let you know and you can include that okay I will do right thank you very much and there we have it so thanks a billion to Bill Campbell for being this week's guest on Body Talk with the Nihilist and also just a general thank you to Bill again for creating Islington Mill and a space that encourages and feeds and nourishes the queer scene here in not just Manchester and Salford, but in the Northwest. It's a very important space. So thanks again for Bill for coming on the show. Like I said at the top of the show, I reckon we'll be having Bill back on again because there was a bunch of stuff that we thought we'd be talking about on this episode that we didn't get around to. And I don't want to rush that stuff as well because they probably need their own in-depth episodes to go into that, including porn. So the next episode of Body Talk with the Nihilist is going to be another solo show that I'm going to do on my own. And I'm going to lay out my entire history and philosophy and theory and practicality and my ideas and my ideology around porn. So the next... So the next episode of Body Talk, which will be Body Talk number five, will be all about porn. And it's just going to be me talking about porn. And I'm also going to be telling you a story of my own involvement in creating some porn and how it didn't really have a very positive effect. But anyway, you will have to tune in next time to hear that one. If you have heard anything on the show that you'd like to get in touch with me to talk about, you can always find me on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash the nihilist. That is T-H-E capital N-I-A-L-L-I-S-T. And that is my family-friendly Twitter, where there is no porn or sexual content on that. So feel free to open that up at work, because there's nothing explicit or adult-orientated on that Twitter. I keep the adult-oriented Twitter for my triple X Twitter. So if you want to get in contact, look me up on Twitter. And if there's anything you want to talk about, send me a message on there. In the meantime, I'm going to leave it for now. And I will be back with the next episode of Body Talk with the Nihilist. Well, I will be going into quite a lot of depth on my own about porn, pornography. So until next time, speak to you then.